0: Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the eastern border. Now, you'll laugh, of course, but uh, I managed to hurt myself once again. That was because didn't sleep didn't sleep for so many hours that it was a bit insane. managed to somehow, I don't know, squeeze my back or something. It hurts a lot. I can only live with, uh, with painkillers currently. In the end, it was all for basically nothing, since the communications from the Russian side when they're actually going on an assault are unreliable and weird and i just ended up calling my friends anyways and it's a mess but in general i have um i have some news for you today of course and not only about ukraine today i have two interesting news from uzbekistan and kazakhstan because you know you see stands were also a part of the whole soviet bloc, and they concern um some things that could be relevant very recently and um uh, show some interesting aspects of this whole war. But let's start with what's happening on the front lines. And here I'm using Igor Girkin after some time, and he also gives some, you know, advice on, on the future, at least how he thinks so. But this comes from um, the whole whole situation, because, well, he turns out, after everything's checked, still the most reliable source. On the Kupyansk and Krasnolimansk directions, uh, that's the city of Leman, he calls it Krasnolimansk, only battles of local importance and artillery skirmishes. After minor tactical advances by Russian troops, the front has been unfortunately stabilized again. The battles go on for individual field positions by the forces of company-level units. Bahmut is the only area where Russian troops are relatively successful. In the course of mutual grinding, the, the Cheveka Wagner, private warfare company Wagner, apparently established a complete control over the village of Krasnaya Gora, which is the northwestern region of Bakhmut. This fact was completely hidden and painted over by, uh, by the Russian media, which also did not mention Wagner Group at all. Which is kind of, you know, reasonable, since in their latest February um, instructions, it was blatantly told for the whole Russian state media not to focus on Wagner Group, just ignore them as much as possible, because, you know, Prigozhin's been a bit more active. Oh, and apparently they recently sort of did another execution with a Sledgehammer. But the problem is that um, it seems to be faked this time, because the whole event of this was weird. So if someone's telling... I think this was meant for more like internal consumption, so I'm not really covering that, because it looks super fake to me, unlike the previous time. Just, just so you know. It- it- I think this was a nice little PR move, like, let's shock everyone again or something, but I don't think it's very important. At any rate, fights continue between the settlements. Stupochke and is southwest of the city, and on the outskirts of the urban type settlement Chassovyar. The armed forces of Ukraine introduce reserves, and the advancement of the assault groups of the so called Orchestra, as they now call Wagner Group, is slow. Russian troops will storm Bakhmut, and the Ukrainians will cling to it. All the more stubbornly, since the Russian Federation Ministry of Defense desperately needs at least some result by the glorious anniversary of the start of the special military operation, and the Ukrainians, for the same reasons. They need to make sure that there is a lack of result in the Russian armed forces. So, well, here I agree with Girkin. This is exactly what's going to happen now, and this is why Bahmut is so important, because if there's going to be some retreat from there by Ukrainians, I think that's going to happen only after the 24th. And, uh... And yeah, here by the way, Girkin also states the occasional criminal PR games performed by Brekozhin and his associates. I refuse to comment in any way or form. Here he speaks exactly about what I just said before, a uh, quite possibly com- staged and weird um, another execution with a sledgehammer, which I think really didn't happen this time. It looked way too staged and very different from the previous time. I just think they actually couldn't be couldn't couldn't, you know capture anyone in the Ukrainian side, because that was all just bizarre. Continuing about the front situation. Near the town of Odievka, zero changes. Uglidar also unchanged. Having bled all the formations and units sent to storm the city, General Muradov, famous for his outstanding abilities of theft back in peacetime, and even more famous during the continuous year-long destruction of his troops in the current war, apparently continues to hope that the meat grinder... Here with Russians, uh, uh, here and uh, this is Gidkin's words. <clears throat> here with the with uh, here with with our guys, that's the Russians. Uh, almost one-sided. The Ukrainians suffer many times less losses. <clears throat> well, he hopes this will finally provide some result. At least, you know, maybe a medal, maybe even a promotion. There is no progress, the situation is difficult for Russian units, since the positions they have occupied are extremely unfavorable for holding them, but it is forbidden to retreat from them and it is impossible to move forward. On the other fronts, in general, no charges. Artillery skirmishes, etc. And here he also comments on, um, on the whole United States situation. Regarding the urgent recall of citizens of the United States and France, and others from the Russian Federation in Belarus, there may be a lot of speculation, but it can be said unequivocally whether this action... It can't be said unequivocally whether this action is a consequence of intelligence information about an imminent offensive from the territory of the Republic of Belarus, or is this another PR campaign? So, you know, that's the situation. Later on, he also mentions that uh, it's practically impossible right now to, to even talk about any assaults from the, from the Belarusian side, unless they happen like literally in the next few days then they probably won't happen because then the are will happen once again so we are stuck back again where you know russians have gained one village and a ton of internal problems because of that village is that that was captured by uh my pigosian troops and this village... Uh, I googled this time. It, it, uh, it, it's a great success for the Russian side. The village has about 15 people living in it at this point. And not three, but about, you know, 15 houses or so. It's it's like two Khrushchevkas in a store and, and something like that. So, um... Glorious success, which brings with it more internal struggles. And in general, other areas, some districts of Bakhmut, which used to be a city. It's kind of like, you know... It used to be Mariupol back then. And... Um, and yeah, not much else. Uh, a squad of, of uh, elite stormtroopers uh, that the Russians had died in Ugladar. And that caused a bit of a riot since, since when Putin was asked what happened with them, he responded in the style of, uh, of the year 2000. You see, when he, when he was back then asked by an American talk show host, I don't remember his name, what happened with uh, the Kursk submarine, he stated, well, Anna Utanula, which means, well, it sank. With a smile on his face. Very sarcastic, you know. Right now, right now, he was finally asked and poked and forced to respond to the question of, well, what happened to our elite unit, you know, of lead troops? And he, in the same way, just responded, well, they're in heaven now. And smiled. Of course, you know, this man is utterly incapable of any strategical analysis or, you know, his eyes visors are nothing but yes-men and... And therefore there are still some people who think that his um, his opinions must should must be somehow you know upkept and that he'll you know agree to something. Much smarter people than he or I, like Mikhail Khodorkovsky, still you know, says opinions that I agree with that uh, Putin can't Putin can't afford to lose this war, and he can't win this war, so he'll just continue fighting it until the end of his reign, which is gonna happen well, until he dies. Hopefully, that's gonna happen in the next year. Worst case scenario, we're talking about 10 years here, but I don't think anyone else will allow it to go for so long. If Putin even signs some sort of a peace deal, that'll be perceived as a loss by his ultra-nationalists, and that's the main thing that the people in the outside world don't see. Which is when, you know, I've, I get a lot of questions, because Putin can't, can't afford to sign a peace deal or anything. Putin just has to be defeated. Put down. Otherwise, this will go on forever. There can be some sort of truce with him, maybe a short time or something, but no, no, no. In no possible way, Putin will, will basically sign a lasting thing, and he's incapable of victory in any way or form. However, like I mentioned, I have some interesting, unexpected news from the stance. And these, are, these were important because well, this kind of shows what corruption does, uh, does to countries and uh, how authoritarianism isn't exactly good in everyday life. And this comes from Eurasianet.org because I could find the news source about this in English which wasn't in Russian. and Doing a lot of work. I, if I have the option to pick up a, an English news version of the same article that I read in Russian, it's very nice. At any rate, Uzbekistan Uzbekistan basically <laughs> has managed to endure the coldest winter in the last century. Thing is there they had a nice little collapse of the energy system. Countless households, including in the capital Tashkent, or the famous great historical city Samarkand, were left without electricity. Low pressure in the gas pipeline grid also has made it difficult for people to keep warm. Many places don't have gas. A lot of places also have, uh, you know, lack of water, because that froze over. Because Uzbekistan is a warm place normally. It's down there, very, very much south, very continental, but it's not as cold there as it normally is. But it was a bit crazy. The cold front that descended from the north, from around January 9th onward, was the most severe in most people's living memory. The snow that carpeted the streets of Tashkent and other cities on that day quickly turned to sludge. The heavy participation eventually stopped, but the cold weather persisted and got worsened. By January 13th, the capital was seeing temperatures as low as. Minus 19.8 degrees Celsius. It's minus 20 at night and everything, and it's crazy. Businesses, school buildings, and hospitals alike found themselves periodically cut off from the power and gas grid. It's all crazy. Winter winter holidays at schools in multiple regions in Uzbekistan have been extended through to January 23rd, pending an improvement in conditions. It's all a bit crazy. Gas stations basically had been periodically forced to shut to they've closed down they don't they don't have gasoline because that's been used to, to boil things as the main resource of Uzbekistan is gas well they um they also have prohibited the use of those in cars because a lot of people some of them also here by the way eastern, in eastern europe that was popular for a while they have you know modified their cars to run on methane that that no longer is, is allowed there they are also now have suspended all of their exports of natural gas anywhere to basically provide for their own citizens. This, the thing is that, you know, something similar happened uh, here in Latvia like a month ago or something, when we had a flood in one of the you know, cities in, in the region that, that I used to come from, Latgale. And what happened was that apparently 10 years ago the... The, the kind of the people living in that city had voted against the expansion of a dam that we have there because you know there's a huge river going through Latvia and it tends to flood and then you know they voted against it because that would be you know expensive and noisy and eh, who needs that stuff? Nothing's ever going to happen. Well, it's it happened this year. Same things happen in Uzbekistan, except it's there there it's countrywide. Apparently, um, apparently gasification and 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 you know traditional heating was offered by the state. But the citizens in their their whole apartment buildings, yeah, you know, they had to organize the pipes themselves, and then didn't do it. They just, you know, get their own private gas heating and whatnot. And um, yeah, now they don't have electricity because what do you know? Sudden cold winters. And the problem is, Uzbekistan is quite friendly, well, at least used to be, with Russia. And in normal situations, they would probably go to Russia and ask for some help. But there are, the Uzbekistan government at this point um, yeah, isn't doing it, because, well, we all know where Putin's a bit busy right now. But, again, this is, this is what tends to happen these days, and not very known outside of this. Pretty, pretty sad situation. And then again, moving to Kazakhstan, which is interesting because, you know, I got, I, I got messages last time about how China is also quite much connected to this whole conflict and this whole situation, and, you know, after last year, because we thought, you know, uh, disrupting the protests in Kazakhstan would be the big story of the year. But, uh, oh boy, turns out it wasn't. And um, turns out that they've been trying to become friendly with China. But that's a bit of a problem, since uh, the Kazakh minority in China is quite oppressed. And Here I quote again from, from the that quote, an ethnic Kazakh journalist and cultural luminary from Xinjiang has been arrested by Chinese security forces, activists in close contact with her say. She had been seeking consular assistance to travel to Kazakhstan. The February 10th detention of Zhanargul Zhumatai, a re-education camp survivor, creates a flesh sor- a source of discomfort for Beijing's ally Kazakhstan, which says little pub- publicly about the repression of ethnic kin next door. According to Rune Steinberg, a Danish researcher who cited a phone call with Zhumatai's siblings in U- U- Urumqi, sorry, the Kazakh language is a bit weird for me in the Baltics to pronounce, Zhumatai was dragged out of her sister's home by security officials on February the 10th. Steinberg has been in direct contact with Zhumatai since pressure on the 47-year-old began to mount at the beginning of the year. He sent Eurasianet a transcript of a phone call that she had recorded in which an officer appeared to be checking on her location just hours before her arrest. Quote, I clearly tell you now, Officer, officer Zhu, I don't want the local administrative committee to visit, visit and I even less want the party committee and other authorities to come visit, Jumatai says in the exchange. So what do you want? Tell me. Let's solve this issue, the officer replies. I don't want anything. I don't want anything. I want to be left in peace, Jumatai says. The very fact that Jumatai was in contact with Steinberg, as well as United States-based Kazakh activist Serkizhan Bilash makes her story unusual and allows for a detailed chronology of the build-up to her arrest. The communications of Xinjiang minority residents with family in other countries are closely monitored by Chinese authorities and have repeatedly been used as pretext for arbitrary detentions, as was the case when Zhumatai was first detained in September 2017. The crackdown that had begun unfolding earlier that year would see more than a million people detained, according to international experts. Prior to that, Zumatai had made regular trips between China and Kazakhstan to promote cultural exchanges and had cultivated professional relationships in both countries. In May 2017, her company displayed more than 200 artworks and handicrafts at the 13th edition of the prestigious Shenzhen Cultural Fair, helping the Urumqi Pavilion win special recognition, Zumatai told Bilish on a day-to-day basis, she produced popular Kazakh language programming for Chinese state-controlled radio and television. In Kazakhstan, where she had a residency permit, she had in the past worked with the state-backed broadcaster KwaZakustan. Since being freed from the camp in 2019, Zumatai remained under heavy surveillance and was unable to return to her former life. Last month, after authorities allegedly offered her a choice between jail and a period in the mental asylum, Zumatai went public with her desire to leave for Kazakhstan. You have no idea how much torture I, I've endured. I beg the world to ha- help me, she told Bilash, leader of the, of the Xinjiang-focused Atya Kazakh human rights organization during a phone call that Bilash recorded and posted on YouTube. According to Steinberg, Zumatai had already been in contact with Kazakh diplomats and was trying to obtain documents with the help of relatives to enter Kazakhstan. Bilash, a firebrand campaigner who is persona on grata in both China and Kazakhstan, is now accusing a Kazakh diplomat in Urumqi of helping facilitate Zumatai's arrest. Having tentatively raised the issue of Xinjiang and the problems of ethnic Kazakhs with China in the first years of the crackdown, Kazakhstan's government no longer passes public comment on the region. This is a long-term source of frustration for Almaty-based relatives of ethnic Kazakh-Chinese citizens swept up in the purges, whose picket outside of Beijing's consulate, the Kazakhstan's largest city, is now two years old. And this kind of makes sense because, you know, Kazakhstan is huge on the map, but it's not a very rich country. People, you know, still uh, it's so vast that I, but I really want to go there. But that's the place where, in the early, early protests last year, just before the war in Ukraine started, you could see youngsters just riding around on their horses, doing protests like you know, in true Genghis Khan style. Those kids can ride their horses better than anyone in Europe, because that's the best way how to how to move over there. What are you gonna do, ride a bicycle in places with like lack of good roads? Or, or, or drive like a car? Well, you can drive a car, but it's gasoline. Horse there is actually way more practical for whatever they use, and they still do it. Kazakhstan, well, of course, there's big cities and everything, but most of the country's step. And their economy is very reliant on its neighbors, and it borders both China and, well, Russia. And seeing how the relationships with Russia has, has deteriorated, as, you know, they uh, support. they don't exactly directly support the sanctions, but they're very friendly to the EU, and they they don't support the whole annexation, they don't support the military operation, as we saw early in the war and last year's April, when the Kazakhstan president actually visited the whole economic forum and Russia made Putin look very bad. So what do they have to do? Like, well, they're far from Europe, although technically part of Kazakhstan kind of counts as in Europe, but that's by geographical sense, but they're a Central Asian country, and they have to be friendly with China. And of course, if they um, start poking around about how the Chinese government is not exactly being very kind and nice to the Kazakhs, you know, then they'll be left alone. And that could cause for photo- eternal issues and protests once again, as the last ones were caused by gas prices increasing. A real pity for the Kazakhs who are living in China, of course, which has its own, you know, problems as we can see torture and concentration camps, but um, sadly in the real politic of things, Kazakhstan seems to be one of those countries with no real, actually very optimistic thing to do, since, well, you know, the United States can't really help everyone all the time, and nor can EU. Bit of a sad situation, but hey, that is why we need to finish up this war with Putin faster, so that Russia maybe can, in my opinion, split apart, and some of those sections will be nicely able to work with Kazakhstan better. And that's it for today. Have a great um, evening, Valentine's Day, or whether or not you celebrate it, guys. Thank you for for listening to the show. Um, If you want to become our patron and support the show, please visit patreon.com slash the Eastern Border. Or you can go to theeasternborder.lv and, you know, listen to all the episodes there without ads. Or you can also just click the donate button there and, you know, support us with a one-time payment as we are slowly preparing for another trip to, to Ukraine. I have finally acquired new people that I can maybe start to build contacts with and organize interviews, which is just great. And I can also probably go to the doctor's place and, you know... I don't, I don't want to use the Oxycontin painkiller. I have a, a much milder one. But I need to figure out what to do with my back. <laughs> At any rate. Uh, also, find me on Mastodon. I'm in the Tud community, Eastern Border. Just type in Eastern Border Mastodon, you'll find me. Because um, my Twitter appeal came back. And um, Twitter hates my guts. And will not, not uh, get me back there. So, sadly, I'm out of that. I do have a Facebook page. Like, it's facebook.com slash the Eastern Border. I don't post news there, but I post episodes there. But yeah, toot community in Mastodon is where I'm at now. Of course, most of you won't come, but hey, those of you who want to read daily snippets of how everything's going and how I'm producing all the situation, well, you can, you know, join up there. До свидания, товарищи. And remember, happiness is mandatory.